the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It was just a few years ago. The slogan turned hashtag my body, my choice, became a rallying cry for the feminist movement. Most commonly known as a statement to promote the legalization of abortions, the pro-choice movement, the slogan has recently also been used to bring attention to everything from equal, equal pay to sexual harassment. From the objectification of women to, more recently, the refusal to shelter in place and wear face masks. As Christians, we understand that life is more than just social movements, politics, or even life and death. It's about God. God and His plan, God and His glory, God and His redeeming work. As Christians, we know that only by prioritizing those things can we then have the right view on things like social movements or politics or even life and death. Because as Christians, we know that ultimately, before we can ever make a decision or a social or political choice that even comes close to my body, my choice, we must start with a recognition of the truth. And the truth that we understand, the truth that is for everyone, but as Christians we have been enlightened, the veil has been removed, so we understand this fully. The truth is not my body, my choice, but God's body, God's choice. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this. As we finish off chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, we'll see Paul giving much instruction about our physical bodies and what they are biblically, what they are biblically, that is to say, what they are in reality. This morning, we begin a multi-week series entitled, God's Body, God's Choice, Today, Liberty and License. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 is our passage for this morning. The series will take us through the end of chapter 6. Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. What we will see in this theme of God's body, God's choice, is the Apostle Paul is focusing on the sin of sexual immorality, which he has touched on uh, in the past few verses that we have seen, talking about the gravity of that sin. And this morning, we begin a series that talks about just how 
much God dislikes, but also why God dislikes sexual immorality. And so this morning from verses 12 to 14 of chapter 6, I want to give you three logical, three logical reasons to avoid immorality. Logical because as we unpack these, we'll see that the Corinthians have justified immoral behavior based on their own logic. Paul adds Scripture to their logic in order to fix it, and I'm sure when you hear it, you too will see the logic in Paul's arguments and the fallacy, the faulty logic in the Corinthians. The first logical reason to avoid immorality, and keep in mind when I say that, Paul is specifically speaking of sexual immorality, is license does not permit licentiousness. License does not permit licentiousness. Let me read for you again verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. It is a common belief that this phrase, all things are lawful for me, had become a common saying among the Corinthians. I get to do anything. Anything is permissible now that I am saved. This was to justify various sins and behaviors. And so Paul picks it up to clarify it by adding biblical principles to, again, help fix the Corinthians' wrong thinking. All things are lawful. What does that mean? It refers to the fact that as those covered by the righteousness of Christ, we are no longer under the penalty of the law in any way. First and foremost, we are not under the Old Testament law. Some people like to pick and choose the Old Testament and justify the use of it for the New Testament believer. But you can't pick and choose just like the Israelites could not pick and choose. You have a problem with tattoos, you cannot appeal to the Old Testament and say tattoos are forbidden for the New Testament, the New Covenant Christian. Because if you say that, based on the Old Testament, then you have to follow all of the dietary laws, all of the Sabbath regulations, all of the festivals. You cannot pick and choose any more than you can pick and choose parts of your salvation. I want the Holy Spirit, but I don't want heaven. I want the Holy Spirit to give me understanding the Scripture, but I don't want conviction over my sin. You can't pick and choose. You can't do that. We have to take it all. And so, as Christians, we are no longer under the penalty of the law in any way, the Old Testament law, but also in terms of any disobedience that we may practice or we may do, we do not incur the wrath of God. The discipline, yes. The judgment in terms of the refining and and, and the burning of the wood, hay, straw, and the reward of the silver, gold, and precious metals, yes, but no longer punishment, no longer the wrath of God. And so, to put it more practically, if you are truly a Christian, There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation and incur the wrath of God for your sin. Because as a Christian, you said, I confess that Jesus took the wrath for my sin for me. So, in other words, Christians, we are free. We have liberty. There's a freedom afforded us by the blood of Christ. However, This freedom is not the kind of freedom that says you can pursue whatever you want, go down any path that your temptations or your desires lead you. No, no. As believers, our freedom is quite literally freedom from something. But for our freedom as Christians to have meaning, 
it must also mean. In other words, we must understand that our freedom is not just from something, enslavement to sin, but also for something, Jesus Christ and His glory. At the most basic level, we are free to no longer sin. Yes, you will always sin until the day you die or the day Christ comes again, the day you are raptured. But you don't have to. You are no longer enslaved to sin, to your depravity, to your sin nature. Whereas previously we were enslaved to our sin. You had no choice but to sin. And even if you did things that Christians on the outside said were good, your heart was wicked. Your heart did not honor God. Your heart was just trying to make yourself look good or appease your conscience. It had nothing to do with God's glory or the pursuit of that. This freedom from sin leads us then to a new freedom, a new morality in the Lord. And this is very important in understanding our freedom in Christ. The more you seek meaning of life in God, the freer you become. The freer you become. You understand that. You want to pursue greater godliness. You want to glorify more. You want to repent. This is not for salvation. This is because of salvation. And you see the difference. Whereas before salvation, you had no choice. Even your best deeds were filthy rags. And so with all that in mind, although, although all things are technically lawful, they are not profitable. Obviously, in Christ, all things is not a blanket statement. All things does not include sin. He's not saying, I can do all things, I can do all sin, and it's okay. We're talking about what we call gray areas. Things that in and of themselves are not wrong, they are not sin. And although there are things that are fine to do, we know that as Christians, we cannot just see everything as black and white, good or bad. We need to see things in terms of how much does it glorify God. We must see things as good, better, and best, not just good or bad. And that's where the concept of profitable comes in. Profitable. You understand this. It provides a benefit. It is something that is advantageous or useful. It bears together for good and is therefore thus worthwhile. It's worth doing. To put this all together, Christian liberty is limited by how it will benefit you spiritually as well as how it will benefit those that are affected by your actions. And understand benefit is benefit in God's eyes not in the world's eyes, whether it's something you do or something you refrain from doing. So when it comes to sin, Christian liberty definitely does not permit it. And when you're talking about being advantageous on one hand, and on the other hand, you understand that there are certain things that we can do that simply have a horribly high price. Sin never brings a profit, always a loss, spiritually speaking. This can be challenging in our society. When the culture has defined our social relationships in a way 
that still allows for personal rights and claims to personal liberties. In other words, our society says you don't need to make personal sacrifices in terms of your desires and wanted pleasures just to be a benefit to others. You do you, whatever makes you happy. There's no cultural expectation that you would give those things up for the betterment of your family and friends. Do what you want and don't worry about others, society says, because if they do have a problem with it, then they're the problem because they are unloving and intolerant. None of that matters for us because as believers, we are neither driven nor limited by the status quo. We are driven and limited by the glory of the one who died, interestingly enough, because of the wickedness of that status quo. Christian behavior is not based on whether or not you have the right to do something or if you are allowed to do something, but whether or not it is helpful to other people and spiritually beneficial to yourself. Paul gives us another principle in verse 12. Not only are we to gauge things by their spiritual profit, but also for their potential mastery over your life. He says, all things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. ESV says, enslaved. It means, as you know, to be uh, under the power, the authority, or domination of someone or something. He says, Paul, that he refuses to take part in anything that can lead to that habit, that action enslaving him, certainly not to any sin, but also to gray areas. Later in chapter 9, verse 27, he will say this, I discipline my body. You guys know this uh, verse. It's very well known. I discipline my body and make it my slave. I make my body my slave with all its sinful temptations and desires. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Heard that verse before, quoted it, understand, yeah, that's, I got to do, I got to discipline, discipline for the sake of God's glory. You know what that word is that he's using there? Discipline, I discipline my body. It literally means to punch under the eye till it's blue. He is saying, I beat my face till it's black and blue to get my body under control. And this is in that famous context of Paul saying that he runs the race, fights the fight in a way that is disciplined for the sake of the gospel. That's how we must be as well. When believers appeal to Christian liberty to justify some action, and and you've heard this, perhaps you've done it yourself. Oh, you're just a legalist. These are the excuses we use to justify our sin. Don't judge me. You're a legalist. You're just immature. When believers appeal this Christian liberty to justify some action, it is because generally they assume that they can remain the master of their behavior. We assume that. And I think it's one of those statements where in your mind you probably said, yeah, that's true, and then chuckled a little because you know that that's impossible. The reality is that Christians who do not repent of their sins ultimately become enslaved to them. In fact, Christians who don't repent of their sins is because they are enslaved to them already. Otherwise, they would have never have done it again after the first time, needing no repentance. 
I'm addicted. I can't stop. Well, you know, it's my vice. It's the old man kicking up. All terms for the same thing. You are enslaved. And what's more, you voluntarily put yourself under that because you are free in Christ and you don't need to do that. You chose to do that. That goes back to Christian liberty or freedom being about the ability not to sin. Liberty is not license. Otherwise, it's actually bondage, not license, because you're going back to what you were previously enslaved to prior to coming to Christ. If not that particular sin, then your sin nature. And when that happens, it starts affecting others. Because when in your mind, in your behavior, in your wrong theology, freedom becomes absolute, right? No ifs, ands, and buts. I'm a Christian. I can do what I want. It actually brings bondage or constraints to the competing freedoms of others. You see that? I'm a Christian now. I'm saved. Can't lose my salvation. I'm not going to go to church. Well, you know what? Your spouse and children are free in Christ to now worship at church, and you're not going to church affects them. See that? We can go on and on in all kinds of gray areas that we can talk about, and sins, of course. And so in keeping with the love of God and Christ's concern for others, we must let go of our own freedoms in order to liberate others to fully worship God the way they ought Again, although he is talking specifically about sexual sin, as we will see in a moment, and we will see over the next three weeks, this applies to gray areas as well. You, you see all the time how people, even Christians, become enslaved to gray areas like tobacco, alcohol, even sports. Not just playing, but following. I don't think he'll, he'll, he'll mind me sharing this. I... Uh, I have a good friend that I disciple who once played football at his college level. And he realized at a certain point that he was idolizing football. Some of us do that without ever having played on any level. Sports scores. Your phone is in your pocket right now. Your hand on your phone to feel the vibrations for a touchdown in your fantasy football. At least half of you have come to me, hey, did you hear my old church? They canceled church because of the Super Bowl. Because the Warriors are in the playoffs. I'm not saying that in and of itself is sin. Not the wisest. But you can see uh, an addiction to this. As we're not just talking about drinking, smoking, and sports. There's all kinds of things. There, 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 there are things that... Maybe nobody else even cares about. Literally, you're the only one. And yet, if it enslaves you, if it becomes master of you, over you, there's a problem. Right? In the end, we re- must remember that our liberty does not mean we are permitted to pursue licentiousness. And this gets more to the point of what Paul's talking about. In a case you're confused... I really don't get Is he talking about sexual sin or is he talking about gray areas? Because he's clearly confronting sin. We're going to see this in a minute because he says immorality. And then all the way to the end of the verse, he even brings up temple prostitutes, which I'll explain in a second. But you're saying gray areas. Let me clarify. 
The Corinthians' sin had become so bad and their view of liberty so bad that, si- that sexual sin became a gray area to them. You see that? They turned it into a gray area. That's the problem. Well, one of the problems. But then he goes into a, an illustration, and again, uh, we see the logic that the Corinthians used and then how Paul fixes that. Our second logical reason to avoid immorality is that science does not parallel sanctity. Science does not parallel sanctity. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. You say, I've read that before. I really don't understand the connection, what he's talking about. Well, I'm glad you're here then. Again, Paul is addressing a logical conclusion that the Corinthians have made and shows their logic to be faulty. And it's understandable. Without the context, it's hard to understand what the connection is here, plus the fact that their logic is just wrong. So here's what being, is being said. He starts with a biological reality, okay? I'm going to add the spiritual realm to it, okay? God designed this incredible connection between the stomach or the digestive system and food, right? Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Wonderful. Beautiful. I can safely assume we are all thankful for this. We like to eat. But in that design, as you know, God has also ordained the ultimate destruction, but future resurrection, of the body, the physical body, thus removing any future need for either food or the digestive system. Sorry, all of you, including myself, who like to eat. There is no need for either in the resurrection in eternity, the digestive system or food. Now, the leap of logic that the Corinthians were making was this. Since all things are lawful, starts with that, and since food is for the stomach and vice versa, and we have an appetite for food that will all eventually be destroyed by God, And therefore, since all bodily appetites are pretty much the same, including sexual appetite, see the faulty logic, that leap right there? That means the body is for sex and sex is for the body, and that's okay because ultimately God is going to destroy the body too. So I can pig out now because the body is made for food, and in the end it's going to be destroyed and You know, whatever junk food, whatever gross things I did to abuse my digestive system by eating flaming Hot Cheetos and green Jello and every other thing with all kinds of additives, right? That's okay because he's going to destroy it. And the Corinthians would say it's the same thing with sex. I can have sex with her and him and all of them, and that's okay because God's going to destroy that along with my hunger and appetite, and then in the resurrection we'll be fine. Remember, their foundational belief is that all things are lawful or permissible. To us, this sounds like a stretch. But we also know how wickedly devious our minds can be when we try to justify sin. And what's more, 
you have the added pressure of the status quo of the culture, which for them included prostitution as a form of worship of the goddess of love, Aphrodite. That was actually a good thing to go to the temple and be intimate with the temple prostitutes as a form of worship. Aphrodite is the goddess of love, anyways, right? I know you don't believe in her, but don't, don't you know, when you, when you read that stuff, don't take your Christian mentality, and, oh, it's just, she's just the god of romance and love and marriage. No, she had prostitutes in her temple. That's the kind of love that was involved in worship of Aphrodite or Venus. To address this wrong thinking about the body and sex, Paul tells them what the body really is for. We know this. It's for the Lord. And he adds this wonderful truth, and the Lord is for the body. It is true that our bodies will be different in the future. They will be glorified. But that does not mean that what we do with our bodies today has no connection with our future resurrection. Quite the opposite. The body is for the Lord, he says. We are to use our bodies to honor and obey Him today in this life on earth. They are saved to be used fully for His service. You see, it's not just our soul or our spirit that was redeemed. It was our physical body as well. It's not just our soul or our spirit that was set apart, sanctified, as we saw, I believe, last week for God. It was our bodies as well. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And think about it. Any part of obedience including your unspoken thoughts or attitudes, your inner praises of God that you don't speak forth, still involve the physical body, your brain. And from the, there, the rest of our physical bodies, whether the tongue or in speaking praises or encouraging or rebuking or evangelizing or the arms aided by our eyes or our heart pumping to keep it all possible is for the Lord. And so our physical bodies are for the Lord even the parts that you are not aware of, even the parts that are moving and beating and breathing that you don't even recognize, parts of the body we never really, we hope we'll never see. You know what I mean? It's all for the Lord. It's definitely not for immorality. To put it another way, in the context of sexual immorality with a temple prostitute, You do not hand your body, which belongs to God, over to one who belongs to Satan to allow her or him to use it for your pleasure. To be clear, we're not just talking about soliciting such a person. We're talking about any form of sexual immorality. When talking about physical sins, you guys know this, there's none more destructive than sexual sin. None more destructive. Broken marriages, destroyed families, destroyed homes, diseases, shattered lives. Sexual immorality leads to lying, stealing, hatred, gossip, unforgiveness, anger, bitterness, even murder. The body is for the Lord, not for such things. What's more? Paul goes on and says, the Lord is for the body. What does that mean? Well, I mentioned it briefly earlier. He gave himself on the cross to redeem our bodies. 
It is only with His help can it function for His glory, right? We need His help to honor Him maximally in our bodies. And this connection is fully demonstrated in the promise that He will resurrect these bodies from the dead. And it goes back to the Corinthians' reasoning. You simply cannot equate biological truth of the digestive system with the spiritual sanctity of our bodies as a means of service. They don't parallel. They don't equate. You could put it this way. The line that is connecting food and our stomachs is horizontal. It is on this earthly plane, and here it will remain. The line connecting the body and the Lord is vertical. There's a connection to God and eternity and heaven. Its significance is both on this earth and with Him in heaven. I actually like how one commentator said it. It's, it's not vertical, it's perpendicular. It goes up and down, but you don't want it, and it goes from the earth up and down to the earth, but you don't want it to go further down into sin. All this to say what we do with our bodies today affects our relationship with Him. Does this mean if you give in to sexual immorality, you're not going to be resurrected? No, that's not the point. But that's really never the point, right? You don't say, I want to repent because I don't want to lose my salvation. You want to repent because you want to glorify God. You want to repent because you want to have a good relationship with Him. You want to repent because He's everything to you. And you can't stand affecting that relationship. And I hesitate to even bring it up now because by, uh, I want to mention how I haven't bro- brought it up, but by saying I haven't brought it up, I'm bringing it up. I'm not doing this on purpose. It just occurred to me that thus far and in my notes, except for the further sins and ramifications, I have not once mentioned how sexual immorality affects your marriage or your kids or your family. Because like you, my primary concern is God's glory. And so when you say, I'm doing this, I need to stop because of my wife, that's great. But you better get your heart right with God. And you've heard me say this before. And I realize I'm entering tangent area. But when you tell me as a parent, Pastor, help me with this because I want to be a good example to my kids, I will tell you you're already a bad example if that's your only goal. You're going to pursue Christ just because you want to be a good example? You want to pursue Christ just because you work with unbelievers and you want to be a good testimony? You got it backwards care about God, love God, more than your wife and kids, more than your husband and kids, and you will be the best example, and they will get it, and they will love you for it, and they will respect you for it. But therein lies the human problem, right? Oh, that sounds good. I do want the respect. Uh, Fell back into it. I'm not saying don't worry about the practical ramifications, but we want to make sure our heart is right so that we are mostly and firstly prioritizing God and His glory. And I know that's hard. You know what's even harder? 
to share the gospel with a loved one because you want to glorify God more than you don't want to see that person go to hell. For some of you in a few minutes, if you're at the hospital or on their deathbed. That's hard. But pursue holiness, pursue perfection. I'm not saying don't do it if your priorities are askew. You still pursue it and then pray that God will give you the right heart. But going back to our text and this faulty and then correct logic, you can't use the logic that science parallels sanctity, right? You, you can't say, well, this is true on this earth, so it must be true later, and this allows for that. It just doesn't work. It's just not true. Logical reason to avoid immorality, number three. We've seen license does not per- permit licentiousness. Science does not parallel sanctity. And thirdly, resurrection does not pardon rebellion. Resurrection does not pardon rebellion. Look at verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. It seems disconnected, but He's actually furthering the argument regarding the body now and the body later. There's an added depth to his argument about the dignity and destiny of the body and why we should not use it for immorality. You could say that this, uh, verse 14, is the theological basis for his previous statement, for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. We know that God raised the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is crucial, crucial to our salvation and our understanding of who we are and the God that we serve. So essential is it that later Paul will write, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. It's worthless. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 12. And the point that Paul is making is simply that if God raised the one, capital O, he will raise the other, us, you. Christ's resurrection is not just similar, okay, is what he's saying. Christ's resurrection is not merely parallel. It doesn't just foreshadow our resurrection. They are a unit. You can't have one without the other. Our resurrection is written in stone and guaranteed and promised and part of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those that belong to Him share the resurrection with Him. And that's also the point that Paul makes in the context of the verse I quoted earlier regarding the resurrection and our faith. It is tied together. The fact that Christ is Lord of our bodies or our material reality naturally connects with the fact that we will be raised one day. And as such, we must live in line today with that final resurrection. So to be out of line with it, to live today in contrary or contrasting or against what that final resurrection will be like, to Paul is not only sinful and foolish, it's absolutely unthinkable. How did you guys come up with this, Corinthians? It doesn't even make sense. Don't abuse your earthly body with immorality. On a practical note, you can see this future promise as an incentive to avoid such temptations. 
When we give in to sexual immorality, we distance ourselves from Christ and His will. We disavow His Lordship, if even just briefly. And such actions are diametrically opposed to the resurrection life. Your life here is a drop in the ocean compared to eternity, which will never end. That's what eternity is. It may help to understand that the promise that is made to us is not a redemption. When we are saved, it's not a redemption from the body. It's a redemption of the body. We don't get saved, and the only part of us we use for the Lord is the immaterial spirit, the soul. We don't die in this body, just sloughs off, falls off, and is discarded. It is resurrected. Our bodies are designed to serve in this life as well as in the life to come. We don't float around in spirit, as spirits forever. We live here on earth in physical resurrected bodies. Very different, yes. They'll be changed. They'll be glorified in the resurrection. But they will still be our bodies. We don't turn into angels. That's a different being anymore that you'll be turned into a cow or a donkey. And I know I'm tangenting here. You've heard me say this before. Please, please, please remove the picture of cherubim and seraphim, angels as chubby little babies with little brown wings. I give you permission as your pastor to go to your local tourist shop your Hallmark store and find all those mugs and just shatter them on the floor. I'm just kidding. Permission ungranted. Don't do that. We will be different, yes, but still these physical bodies. Let me give you a little idea of the, 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 the cultural pressure they were under. Ancient, the ancient Greek mindset put very little value on the material world. From this evolved or came their belief of the immortality of the soul, which said that the spirit is immortal, but the body, along with the rest of the material order, is to be destroyed permanently. And for them, there was a clear disconnect between the future and today. And so they would do whatever they want, abuse their bodies. It's okay because there's no connection there. But the Bible says differently. The Bible says there is a very clear connection. And Paul's going to say a lot more about the resurrection in chapter 15, so I won't go into more depth than that. But for now, we must understand that the resurrection of our bodies does not pardon rebellion today. You cannot say, well, someday I'll be glorified, so I'm just going to party today. Rather, biblical logic says that the future resurrection actually prohibits rebellion today. And so we see three logical reasons to avoid immortality, or immorality rather. That's one of the reasons is immortality. Three logical reasons to avoid immorality. License does not permit licentiousness. Science does not parallel sanctity. And resurrection does not pardon rebellion. 
And as we continue through 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, Paul is going to talk a lot about sexual immorality. And he will even refer to the temple prostitutes. And you have to understand that we're not just talking about soliciting prostitutes. This is any form of sexual immorality without being graphic, even if that immorality just involves you or you and a computer screen. We know it's wrong and sinful. And I hope these three reasons really open our eyes to additional theological and logical reasons to avoid immorality, to flee from it, to stay as far away as possible. And as we close this morning, I want to take a brief moment to address those of you who have given in to sexual immorality since becoming a Christian. Very brief. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Your objective guilt in the law court of God is gone. So stop letting your emotional guilt dictate your relationships. Make you scared to get married. Make you timid towards your spouse in the bedroom. You are forgiven. Your past actions have no bearing on your standing with God. God's grace is sufficient. And I don't care how you feel right now. You are clean. I don't care who it was with. I don't care how often it was. I don't care how wicked and vile it was. I don't care if you were married. I don't care if it led to your divorce. None of it is greater than the grace of God. You don't need to feel bad about that anymore. I understand there are memories. I understand there are flashbacks. And I understand there may even be certain neighborhoods or entire regions of the country or the world that you can no longer visit. And that's good. Don't go there. I understand that could affect your relationship with your spouse in the bedroom. That's normal. But you have to understand that on an objective level before the eyes of God, you are forgiven. Now, if you're still doing it, you need to repent. You need to seek forgiveness. You need to make sure that you don't do it again. I understand that repentance of sin, often it's hard to go cold turkey. Baby steps. But you have to understand, lesser is still sin. You know what I mean? If you're no longer doing the physical act, praise God, but if you're still tempted by the Internet, that's still sin and you need to repent fully. 180 degrees. But rest assured, that as you repent, and if you stumble again and repent again, God's grace 
is sufficient. I truly hope that today's message didn't just make you feel bad about the past, but gives you motivation, hope, and joy about today and the future. For all of us, even if you don't struggle with that sin or never have, we need to flee immorality in every level. It is the norm of the Christian life to live in a holy manner. We must not give in to status quo norms. I have spoken to more than one Christian who is dating or engaged, who has not just been questioned neutrally, but actually been mocked for not sleeping or living with their significant other prior to marriage. A test run, they call it. How can you even know you want to marry that person if you haven't lived with them first? They don't even worry about the Bible. There's just a logical fallacy right there. Uh, the same way they've done for thousands of years before 1990. In fact, if you were confused about whether we're talking about gray areas or sin, again, it's because the Corinthians were so far gone that they had made immorality a gray area. We do the opposite, right? We call gray areas sin. We can't call something sin if the Bible doesn't call it sin. That's neither here nor there. They have become so immune, given in so much to the culture, that, and I'm choosing my words on purpose, they became immune and ditched the Bible if even for a small point and said, love is love. It's okay. And there we go. Down the rabbit hole you tumble. We need to be careful. Please don't see this uh, as an endorsement of one candidate or another. But even the way you think about politics today, oh, my friends, you need to be very careful. You need to be very careful. I have seen well-trained, theologically sound, Christians, and their arguments to justify abortion are just shocking and, frankly, illogical. It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, maybe this is getting political. I don't like his personality. He's rude, so I'm going to let babies die. How does that make sense? We need to understand that how we live in this world, we need to take the truths of Scripture. I'm going back to the text here. And first and foremost, in our own lives, in what we think is okay, not just for us, but for other people, right? 
our children as they get older and start dating? Do you want to raise them with the understanding that they may be persecuted? Or you just, you know, I really want him to be popular. I want to be the cool dad. So don't be home by 11 tonight. Be home by 11 tomorrow morning. And here, son, take this. Be safe. What's more important to you? Popularity, the culture, satisfying your own desires, whether it's for sex or anything else, or holiness. And as hard as these temptations may come at you, the slings and arrows from the devil, you need to stand firm because neither the future reality nor today's reality of the human body, none of it justifies immorality. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, its stomach is for the food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would take this sin seriously. We understand that the circumstances with idol worship were very unique for the Corinthians, and yet we know that in any time in history, our times these days are extremely unique when the discussion on sexual immorality does not even need to, is not limited rather to male and female. The accessibility of pictures and videos are unlike any other time in our history. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the wickedness of this sin. We thank you for your forgiveness of those who have done these sins in the past, even since knowing you. We pray for strength and a pursuit of holiness, a love for you and a love for others that makes them and drives them to avoid these sins again. For those who are in the midst of those, give them the, the strength, the wisdom, the discernment of how to make the practical steps and the spiritual pursuits to repent of these sins. I pray that as men and women seek accountability from others in, of us in the church, that we would give them biblical advice, that we would be firm but gracious, that we would not blow off these sins as just typical of their age or their marital status. May we take these seriously because of your glory and the wonders of what you have promised for us in the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.